0: I'm Dr. Mark Lewis, the executive director of NDIA's Emerging Technologies Institute. And welcome to Emerging Tech Horizons. Uh, On today's podcast, we're joined by not one, but two experts who will be talking to us about government contracting. And they are Dr. Jerry McGinn and Eric Lofgren. Uh, Jerry is the executive director of the Center for Government Contracting in the School of Business at George Mason University. Uh, The center is currently conducting over $3 million in research for the Department of Defense, other sponsors, uh, and and has published influential white papers and commentary pieces, has held events on topics such as DOD budget reform, intellectual property policy, industrial-based resilience, and defense acquisition best practices. Uh, Jerry is a trusted strategic advisor. He's sought after for his expertise in U.S. industrial policy, supply chain, Defense Production Act, industrial security, export control, foreign military sales, industrial-based policies, and he currently serves in the Economic Security Subcommittee of the Homeland Security Advisory Council. Prior to joining George Mason University, uh, Jerry served as a senior career official in the Office of Manufacturing and industrial Base Policy in the Department of Defense, where he led efforts to analyze the capabilities and overall health of the defense industrial base, including the presidentially-directed 2017-2018 interagency review of the manufacturing defense industrial base and DPA activities. Um, He also directed hundreds of reviews of high-profile mergers and acquisitions, as well as transactions before the Committee on Foreign Investment. Uh, Dr. McGinn was commissioned in the U.S. Army. He served with distinction as an infantry officer and is a graduate of Ranger and Airborne Schools, has received numerous civilian and military awards, earned a Ph.D., Master of Science, and Master of Arts from Georgetown University, as well as a Bachelor of Science from the United States Military Academy at West Point. Also joining us, as I mentioned, is Eric Lofkin. Eric is a research fellow at the Center for Government Contracting. Within the school of business at george mason university and at the center for government contracting performs research rights leads initiatives on business policy regulatory and other issues in government contracting uh, prior to joining george mason uh, eric was a senior analyst at technomics incorporated he supported the defense department's cost assessment and program evaluation office cape which many of us know well he's also supported government analyses for the government accountability office NAVC, the Canada Public Works and Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Costs and Economics. Uh, Eric is an expert in cost estimation, defense contract business data. He's won five best paper awards at the International Cost Estimating and Analysis Association, including best paper overall. And during his time at George Mason, he's written multiple r- reports on uh, federal contracting data uh, and policies related to the COVID-19 response. Uh, he's also done a Naval Postgraduate School Symposium paper on acquisition reform, and has a book manuscript on the history of weapon systems acquisition. So, Jerry and Eric, first, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the podcast. Um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And, and I'm wondering if we could start off, could you both share a little bit about your backgrounds and how you came to your current roles? And, Jerry, maybe you start, and then, Eric, you fill in.
1: Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, Mark, it's great to be with you, and I uh, love what you're doing with, uh, with the uh, – your uh, merchant tech um, organization at uh, ndia Yeah so i um you know as as you uh, kindly kind of outlined that uh, so sort of my career i basically can't keep a job at, in and around national security in government in industry uh and now for the first time in academia um and i didn't intend to come here what what happened was i was leaving government uh, I was an scs in in what's now acquisition and sustainment um, office industrial based policy <clears throat> and i was looking i thought I'd go back to consulting but uh, George Mason decided, hey, listen, we want to actually um, build a university center focused around the business of government, focused around the the business policy, regulatory issues facing government and industry. Um and it's it's always been amused me that there hasn't been a real focus of that. I mean, some of the think tanks dabble in it a little bit, um, but the FFRDCs like the URAND and MITRE and so do a lot of work in there. But but not on the uh, university side. So uh, the opportunity to stand this organization up and as was too uh, irresistible to um, to pass up. So I've been doing that for four years plus now, and uh, we've been doing uh, reports, um, studies, uh, analyses, events around the kind of the the broad range of issues such as you outlined: emerging tech, um, you know, acquisition, um, and uh, across the government space, not just defense. Um, but, um, and it's been a lot of fun and, you know, Eric has been, you know, uh, by far our best hire and he, he's joined us and he's been with us three plus years now uh, and um, and has been leading a lot of our efforts.
0: Excellent. So Eric, uh, over to you, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to your current position.
2: Sure. So I was doing a number of cost estimates, uh, things like that, and I kind of got a feeling, you know, while I was in the Pentagon, I was like, well, here I am, you know, costing out the F-35. I don't know how to build an F-35, right? Um, I didn't. So I was like, okay, well, I'm working with this data, but what does it mean? And we were doing, uh, one of the things that we were doing was actually inflation. And so like, we look at the past history of fighter inflation, and, uh, you know, it would tend to outpace regular inflation by like 2x, right? So if we assume that we adjust for history using these higher than normal escalation rates, and then we project into the future that things will grow faster than inflation, won't that just create some structural problems? So I actually wrote the original kind of inflation and escalation handbook for cost analysis in the Pentagon um, that advised that we do this because it's the most realistic thing, right? If we've had these problems in the past, shouldn't we have them in the future? And if we use these types of escalation rates on the F-35 in 2002, when it was baseline, you'd have 0% cost growth today. So it was a great program. Maybe we were just looking at it wrong. And I thought this was a little bit dangerous and a little bit awkward. And I didn't, you know, as a young person in the Pentagon, I'm surrounded by very, very smart people, but it just seemed like something was off. So I just had to go into the history of it because that's kind of my background economics and history. How do we apply history and, and market economics to this non-market sector? And so that's where I kind of stumbled upon this idea of uh, budget reform, the planning, programming, budgeting, execution process. And I was very interested in that in the 2010s, and had been writing a book, as you kind of mentioned, while I was there. And I actually got a random, you know, offer from uh, there was a professor at George Mason who got a little bit of money to do kind of like social venture. And so I was just like, hey, I'll apply to this. I want to you know, do this thing called PPBE reform and maybe start a blog and a podcast and do some advocacy. And so he got me out of the Pentagon. I left my job there. Um, and then luckily, after I had a little fellowship for a year, I found Jerry, who was also at George Mason, and he brought me on kindly and was able to continue the fight and continue the work and expand that out, not just PPBE, but all these other types of things in, in terms of contracting requirements and the whole big A acquisition process. And, and here we are today.
0: Yeah, and of course, PPBE reform is a very, very timely subject these days. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess- no, know,
1: we were very excited to see the commission being stood up, and uh, and you know, we, we've been having we've had discussions with um, the team, uh, some of the commissioners um, uh, in one of their open mic sessions, and you know, and and um, you know, love the work they're doing. Well, one of the things we did recently, um, we did a report, um, you know, uh, last fall, which came out where we looked at some of the, what can we do now, even without PPB reform? And that's what we, that was our Bridging the Valley of Death report, which kind of looked at, you know, things that we can do now to help address some of the challenges that, um, you know, are manifested in, in, that, uh, in the current system.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hey, so, so now with, with that context, tell us a little bit about your center, the Center for Government Contracting, uh, yeah. maybe recent projects that you've been working on, working with.
1: Yeah, yeah, like we, we started in uh, 2019 um, is when we officially kicked off. And, um, you know, and the whole idea is for, was for our center to be a nexus for government, industry, and academia to address the business policy regulatory issues facing the overall community, uh, government and industry, defense, non-defense. Uh, and the like and uh, it, it's been and we do that through three lines of effort we do that through research you know like reports that we've done and uh, white papers uh and then we do um education and training we do some um i teach an mba elective around the strategy and business issues and government contracting we do some executive education um um for government and industry uh and then we do um uh, collaboration we do outreach and events we do we have an annual conference um, last year, we had three undersecretaries, current and former, um, and, um, you know, that we do that. So, that, so we, and, you know, our principal way that we do things is we do a lot of um, studies and analyses, and we do that through um, internal funds. And, um, and as you mentioned, uh, we, we were fortunate to get a number of um, government uh, studies in the last couple of years around um, defense finance, uh, TINA, uh, as well as intellectual property uh, and um, other transactions authorities. So we've been executing on those, and um, uh, the majority are done, but we've got some other things that are coming um, in, the, in the pipeline. Um, and they're mostly, you know, they're, you know, they've been on IP and, and finance issues, but we're also looking to get into, the, you know, the budget reform. Uh, as well as, um, analysis of mergers, acquisitions, impact on consolidation on the defense industrial base. So those are kind of. Issues we've uh, done to date um, and, um, you know, we, you know, but we're also spreading out. We did 1 last year around NASA, the future of NASA and civil space um, we did 1 on. Um, the, um, uh, the, the FAPAS authority which is on you know essentially using executive orders for acquisition policy um, which goes well beyond defense issues so we're kind of spanning we're trying to expand beyond just defense but those are some of the, the topics we've been working on very
0: good I I love the fact by the way that you're you're bringing academic scholarship to bear on on this this issue I, I think yes. that's that puts you in a very unique space I, I think that's yeah. a great.
1: And it's, it's been really receptive, you know, because the government has been very interested in, um, and as well as industry, because they like that, that um, uh, the neutral convening authority, the independent perspective. We've purposely stayed a little bit away from that pure academic kind of peer-reviewed research, because, I mean, that's really good. But a lot of that, as you probably well know, Mark, is long in the gestation period. And we're focusing on trying to impact, um, you know, government and industry through policy uh, recommendations. And we do that principally through white papers and reports that are digestible to staffers on the Hill and the like, um, but have that academic perspective where we're not kind of, you know, we're not in one partisan camp or another. And um, it's been, uh, it's been, it's been a real, real fun ride.
0: We, we have a very, very similar philosophy to ETI that we'd rather do the short and sweet white paper that we know is going to be read is going to have impact. So, so yeah, Hey, so Eric, tell us a little bit about your role at the Center for Government Contracting, what, what, including maybe some recent projects.
2: Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm kind of all over the place in terms of, of my my role over there, but I have been leading a couple of lines of effort for defense pricing and contracting, including cost accounting as a barrier to entry and uh, the Truth in Negotiations Act. So we're looking at examining alternatives to certify cost or pricing data. And so that was actually a much larger report. This was part of what Jerry was talking about, like the broader fi- finance studies that included industrial-based health, small business, and the like. And so we just kind of like finished up those reports late last year. Uh, so really excited to get those over. And hopefully those some of those will be made public and we'll be able to share some of that, uh, that information as well. But yeah, I've been also working with the PBBE Commission a little bit uh, Jerry and I were invited out there to speak with them and I've been back um, delivering them some data. So I've been putting together a bunch of, uh, you know, the reprogramming data in these, quote unquote, dd fourteen sixteens. And these are the same things that have basically been sitting around since the 1960s, still in these like PDF and Excel documents. Um, and like, so I'm just trying to build a database out of them as well.
0: Um, Actually, probably your PDF and not just hard copy. In some yeah. Cases.
2: Luckily, they are in Excel, but they're such in a non-standard Excel format. And, you know, we're lucky enough that, you know, Comptroller actually gives us the R1 and the P1 docs, you know, like in Excel, but still like all that stuff, you have 30,000, like just in the investments accounts for uh, the budget, there's 30,000 pieces of paper that get sent over every year just for investment. And they go, they're across like 48 different volumes. Right. And this is where all of the program activities. So going back to the F-35, for example, if you look at a selected acquisition report, there's actually like 50 program elements that the F-35 has taken from just in the investment accounts. And just imagine trying to find all of those program elements um, and then put them all together and try to understand the program narrative and what's really going on. So you know, that's part of this, this effort as well. But one of the other, so of course, there's budget reform, there's, uh, there, there is the kind of pricing and cost analysis aspect of what I've been doing. And then another aspect that Jerry and I are really kind of moving into is this idea of, I think what we might be calling industrial deterrence, but <laughs> industrial mobilization and surge capacity. So understanding how was that done in the, in the World War II, and the Korean War eras, where we really did have this idea of how we get things in quantity quickly to the field and we've lost a little bit of that and I think you know with this generation of great power competition coming back it's going to be one of the challenges of our time and one of the things that we we you know not just in industry or in academia but folks like you market at, at Ndia and the industry associations and within government and then the broader commercial and capital markets are really going to be needing to look into and so that's another element and then yeah so there's there's several lines of effort but I'll stop there.
0: Yeah, no, I, you know I I always like to quote Hap Hap Arnold, one of the, the fathers of the US Air Force, just, you know, said World, World War 1 was run one on brute force, World War II was one on logistics. Mm-hmm. And you're right, harnessing the the power of US industry. So so do I understand you you get students involved in your projects?
1: We we do uh, we get them involved uh, principally as graduate research assistants. Um, so we have uh, one uh, we have one now and a couple others we're looking to bring on board. Um, but what we generally use a lot are are our faculty actually. So like for a lot of the studies we did on defense for defense pricing and contracting office, we had faculty experts subject matter experts that helped our research teams because they. I mean, when you, you know, they're the ones that really know commercial accounting um, and they're the ones that know uh, defense, that know finance and or uh, operations management um, on the academic literature. So we've we found a nice synergy where we bring our kind of our research team together with um, faculty and student research assistants to um, go after some of these problems.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. Hey, so so I want to dive in a little bit on. You know, we talk a lot about the need for reform. Obviously, the commission is, is is operating this morning. But I want to start on on positive note. Are there any bright spots? Are there any areas where the DoD acquisition system today excels? And and are there processes that we should protect?
1: Um, I, I think, I mean, I think a couple of things are, are very positive. I mean, I, I think number one is, they sort of have gotten the innovation message, right? There's a real kind of a real broad recognition, uh, and a lot of a uh, multiple amount of efforts is like how do we um, how do we you know bring commercial tech into um, to address DoD problems. So, and you know, you've got all these outposts. You know, DIU is the biggest one, and uh, AFWorks and SoftWorks all over the department um, that are you know you know looking to do prototyping um, efforts. Um, you know, and so they've gotten that, but you know, there's there's downsides to that because if you look at the overall, when you compare that to the overall amount spent on RDT&E or procurement, I mean, it's it's, it's infinitesimal, uh, and then it's also not um, uh, you know the scales up there and the transition. Um, so the 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 challenge of transitioning these kind of these kind of prototypes is is a bit of challenge. But I think they've gotten that message, um, and they're trying to rapidly kind of acquire things. Um, so I, I and then they also are using the authorities to use different kind of a, a acquisition authorities such as other transactions authorities or commercial solutions openings um, that are really kind of trying to unlock um, um,
2: capabilities faster so I think you know that's on the positive Eric do you want to add sure yeah and I think software is another, Uh, One that is pretty positive, we have the software acquisition pathway. There's the budget activity eight, the colorless money. So you could do continuous development and deployment. So you're not stovepiped into research and development, procurement and operations and maintenance software is really going to break down those stovepipes. And then you also see um, Deputy Secretary Kathleen Hicks had a continuous ATO or authority to operate kind of memo come out. Um, And we're seeing the birth and the growth of these software factories. So Kessel Run in the Air Force, it was pretty irregular for a time. Now it's becoming pretty institutionalized and is really delivering great capability to air combat command. And then you're starting to see these replicate across uh, the services. So you have Army, uh, Software Factory, and then you also have in the the Navy places like the Forge um, that that are really able to start, you know, doing this continuous deployment of software using containers and the like. And hopefully we'll be able to kind of get a lot more synergies across across a DoD acquisition in that respect. Now, another part, as Jerry was saying, is pretty bright that, you know, of course, we don't like the higher interest rates necessarily. And it kind of had a downturn in the broader market. But here with with the rise of Ukraine, coronavirus, and then the, the change in the interest rate regime, regime we're starting to see private capital much more interested in defense technology and, and companies. And company founders are really starting to consider this space very differently. and we're also seeing the large traditional firms you know embracing this in a way as well. in terms you've seen Lockheed Martin for example, uh, they've really ramped up their, their kind of venture capital arm and they made a very large you know uh, investment in Terran, uh, which is a space company. And so, I think there's a, a lot of a lot of good things kind of coming through. You know, through adversity, they see the Department of Defense potentially as growing, but potentially as a a place of stability and an early adopter customer. And it really is, you know, what we've seen since the 2016 timeframe. There's this huge burst of prototyping, right? And if you look at the budget activity 6.4 prototyping account and research, development, test, and evaluation, that really grew you know, since the mid 2015s, pretty large. But the problem potentially is that we're seeing, you know, historically, it used to be, you know, during the Reagan era buildup, it was like 73% of investment account was procurement and 27% was RDT&E. So we're really like fielding things at scale. That's how we got to the 600 ship Navy. But now we've we've been seeing this burst of uh, RDT&E. And so now it's it's something closer to like 56%. Is procurement and forty and forty four percent or more is uh, is already T and E. So we're almost at this one to one parity. And as these things that we've been that the department has been investing in in terms of prototypes start to reach maturity, they need to start getting into procurement. And I'd love to see you know procurement really grow because there's plenty of capital um, from the private sector and from industry and uh, IRAD in the large traditional primes. They're doing a lot of great work. Right. It's will these things transition and get into procurement and be fielded rapidly at scale because we're losing time in this race against China.
0: You've you've hit on a theme that is near and dear to my heart, um, the, the whole idea of, of, of the especially the services, organized, trained, or equip, being prepared to place bets once prototypes are proven out. And, and I can tell you it was a concern when I was in the building that we didn't see those bets being placed. That you know the what if it actually works, um, yeah. So yeah, by all, by by all means, um, it I, I, I love it. of private investment too because that's something also that we you know we've certainly seen here at NDIA and you see this these these these, these uh, um, private private investment sometimes private individuals stepping up and and frankly in many cases it's it's just a sense of patriotism. I mean, they're seeing a a problem. They want to support national defense, and and it's just you know they're 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 just being patriotic Americans and in, in deciding where to place their place their dollars. Um, so so with that in mind, you know we spent a lot of time at ETI talking about innovation, and is the DOD innovative enough? And we've done devoted some podcasts back to recent podcasts that we did with Dr. Bill Bonvillian from MIT was talking about uh, industrial innovation policy. Give me your take. How well does the DOD innovate in science and technology? And, and if, are there places that it can improve?
1: I mean, I, I kind of am inclined towards, um, I forget who it was. I don't know if it was Mike Brown or somebody else. I mean, it's, I, I don't think DOD doesn't have an innovation problem. They've got an innovation adoption problem. Right. So I think right now we're seeing a lot of, you know, efforts um, to bring new tech in. It's just like, how do we transition It is the real challenge, you know, you know, who's going to catch it? You know, do you have the like the, 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 the issue that you um, mentioned, like, you know, who's going to be the receptor in the services? Because they're the ones that organize, train, and equip. Um, so, uh, so that 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 is an area. But I, I have actually a, a, a positive uh, anecdote on that, if you don't mind me. Uh, you know, so, one of the white papers we did last year, because I wanted to to test this. I, I wanted to look at a use case and you know, you did a lot of work on artificial intelligence when you were in the building. And I wanted to look at one of these use cases to see, is this just a buzzword or is it something that is being adopted? Right. So I looked at, I took the issue of prevent predictive maintenance, right. Which is a topic that was um, done um, heavily by uh, DIU defense innovation unit and by uh, what's now the uh, CDAO, the former uh, joint artificial intelligence Center, Jake. Um, they did a several prototypes in 2017, 18, 19, even a 20 on predictive maintenance and they had some companies won some um, contracts to do that uh, and then they delivered those to the um, uh, to the services, to the Air Force and to the Army and I, my question was, you know, I mean, are, are these actually being used or is it sort of not invented here problem, you know, that kind of thing. But I was really surprised, pleasantly surprised to see uh, in both the, the Army and the Air Force, they, those efforts were continuing and continuing to grow because what happened is that, um, like I talked to the Army and, um, and PEO soldier or no, PEO um, aviation. I mean, they took the prototypes they got from DAU and they didn't quite work in 100 percent of the way. But what they did is they took that and they used it to build off of and, you know, and they've got a whole um, um program running out of um, uh, Carnegie Mellon and the um, the AI center that the Army has there that builds off this capability so it was really nice to see this transition as something that the services were actually using um, um, on a significant basis so so I you know um you know I think there's a long way to go it wasn't kind of the scale or the speed that you know that that some of the innovative tech folks would would argue for but you know but I was pleased to see that kind of progressing. All
0: right. So um, how should DOD be thinking about acquisition in order to improve its ability to design or procure innovative technology? And and is there is there a role for Congress? I, I'm assuming the answer is yes. But what is the role for Congress in that whole process?
2: Yeah. So I think the way, you know, I think the acquisition authorities tend to be there, right? We have the middle tier of acquisition that has come through in FY 2016. I think that was the right idea. You had the rapid prototyping and then you had the rapid fielding accounts and those allowed you to kind of get started without all of this documentation, and even allowed you to get out of the joint capabilities, integration and development system, the JSIDs requirements. Uh, so you're able to kind of move much faster through the requirements and the the acquisition processes, but funding again, kind of keeps becoming an issue, right? And, uh there, there was that rapid prototyping account that was created, but now that's defunct. So there's not really like these uh, flexible funding mechanisms, because it can take two or more years to get an effort into the budget process, so that you can then go execute, which kind of negates some of the flexibilities that we find in middle tier of acquisition. But what we've also been seeing from Congress is um, the addition of uh, more types of reporting requirements on those authorities. So, for example, on middle tier, you now have a full funding certification requirement from comptroller, and then you also have from uh, DOTE, the Director of Operational Test and Evaluation, another certificate of for uh, certification of the test plan. And yet, these are types of, especially on tests and evaluation, you don't. That's not even required ahead of time for a lot a lot of large programs. And so a lot of program managers are kind of saying, well, middle tier is actually losing a lot of its value for me to a degree, right? Because um, I'm gonna have a lot more oversight and a lot more uh, reporting because I'm middle tier, I'm doing the new thing. So you know the new guy kind of gets uh, hammered a little bit with respect to that. But then there's also more and more reporting requirements coming in. And I think this gets back to this idea that is inherent in defense and when we think about you know what's happening in innovation i think the labs and you know darpa doing very well i think there's a lot of interesting things coming out of there there's interesting things coming out of internal research and development from the primes and as well as commercial it's just the problem becomes it's back to a waterfall life cycle plan ahead of time so you have to create this program And then you have to have the life cycle understanding of it before you even start it. And so you get out of this agile mindset. And so in order to do that, you have to do all these plans and and all these documentations, and it takes a very long time. And it's all based on a lot of opinions and judgments from many functional offices, as opposed to um, empirical data, because you have to start these things so early. And so, how do you there's the kind of chicken or the egg problem with some of these programs where you want to have these innovation funds so that you can get started, you can do rapid prototyping. you can then understand what the cost and life cycle implications are in terms of your product support strategy to support level of repair analyses and the like. But in order to do that, you need to already have known what the program was that was going to accept it and have the life cycle implications of that. Or else, there won't be a catcher's mitt, as Jerry talked about, lined up to accept these programs. And so you want to you want to do the rapid prototyping, but you also have to have everything smoothed out and and uh, budgeted for in the long term implications. And that's really hard thing to ask the military services to digest, right? You're going to say, okay, we're, we want to start this idea of this prototype and maybe field it in the future. We're not sure exactly when it's going to work or that it even will work out, but you're going to have to trade off your force structure now, right? You're going to have to take away your future funding and make those trade-offs now, even though I can't guarantee you this thing's going to work. And so that's a really hard trade-off to make. And so even though the department wants this prototyping money, they, they sometimes don't palm for the whole thing. And there was some consternation that some of these middle tier programs weren't fully funded through the future year's defense program probably precisely for this, this issue, right? Cause they didn't want to trade off for structure now when they didn't know that it was going to work. And so you get into this chicken or the egg problem um, and, and that's really coming back to this whole prediction and control as opposed to agile and learn kind of mentality.
0: No, that makes perfect sense. Um, you know, we've often said that uh, <laughs> you see a, a promising new technology the first time, you want to you you want to uh, uh, adopt it, and you realize that what you really needed to do was go back in time two years and palm for it, and have have the money ready. So what we really need to do is invent time travel in order to make this whole system work. Um, <laughs> so no, that's ex- excellent points. So all right, let's talk about defining success. How do we define success in this realm? What metrics should we use, and and what? what could we lose from reducing duplication and the colors of money?
2: Well, I, I would say defining success, we've had this kind of universal metric, right? It's called cost schedule technical, you find it in your acquisition program baseline, right? So you define exactly what you need to do. And then you have a cost and schedule out. And then you really kind of measure back based on that cost and schedule. So you have like, You know your acquisition program unit cost. if you breach that or the program acquisition unit cost you get a non-maccurity breach so it's all about cost growth it's these like back to financial metrics but that that was one way that we can kind of have a universal metric across all these different programs you have ships you have you know satellites you have ground vehicles i can all use my apb and measure them in the same way but i think what the metrics for success really need to go to is kind of more contextual based, right? Where you have kind of living things that are what I might be calling capability over time curves, right? So it's not that you have one objective and threshold value for something that's specific. It's you might have many different metrics because Goodhart's law says, Anytime a metric becomes a target, it's no longer good as a metric because they over-optimize on it. And then you're probably not going to get the thing at the end that you really wanted. So how do we kind of measure things over time? Like if you're doing waypoint navigation for AI or an autonomy program, well, how far can it go today? And then how quickly are we learning? For autonomous USVs, unmanned surface vessels, okay, maybe the requirement is 750 hours without touching the engine. Maybe we're at 300 or 500 now. How quickly are we learning across? Are are we improving that so that when we do get to the requirement, we are able to already have already integrated the mission modules and maybe even, you know, some kinetic effects um, so that it's all coming together at a much faster rate and we can get it into the field without having to wait for everything to be perfect. And then we can build our program. And now we're waiting another five to 10 years. Um, So I think that's a, a critical aspect. Of getting away from these universal metrics, having contextual metrics that we track over time, improvement, and then we can make those incremental decisions as to does this keep going, does it keep getting funding, or should we kill it um, rather than you make all, you batch and queue them. You just make all of your decisions once at the program baseline and then you just let it go, um, pretending that the threat won't change, that technology won't change, uh, and that your requirements won't change because we know in this dynamic world that they will. Yeah. Excellent point. Excellent point. Jeremy.
1: Yeah. I think, I think we could, um, get some metrics around, um, you know, around the whole issue of execution flexibility. I mean, I think, um, as you talked about, you know, the whole time travel problem, you know, of, you know, trying to get the budget, I mean, that's just not, you know, but that's not, it shows the, um, the the flaws of the system right yeah. you've got to have some ability to do innovation at the speed of uh, at the speed of um you know of battle which means um which means you've got to be able to have a catcher's mitt you know that you can you know do these rapid innovation prototypes and then you've got to be able to have some flexibility to get those into production so i mean so and we talk about this in our um, bridge the valley death report you're know, like the the they're moving towards portfolio consolidations and some program elements you know that that kind of thinking um and that kind of approach you know is it has to happen for us to have this flexibility. And you could start small with prototyping uh, with small kind of uh, portfolios within the services, but that way, um, you've got you've got a catcher's mitt uh, for these these innovation efforts uh, that can really test out whether or not this is, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, works. And then because the, the, the real challenge that we found in, in our report and the commission found this as well is the, the, the poisonous relationship between Congress and the, and the department on these kind of matters. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. very "poisonous" too strong of a word, yeah. but, you know, the lack of trust. Um, and, um, you know, that, you know, that goes both ways um, on this. And so how do we break, build on, build that? Um, and, you know, it's, 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 I test running these things and really kind of creating more efforts. And so measuring that is, is harder, um, um, but, but I, that's where, um, that's where I would see some success for, in my views, so if we get, um, if we get, you know, move more in that direction.
0: Understood. Over- no, that makes perfect sense. We're, we're, we're running, we're running out of ta- time. But be- before you go, I want to ask, um, obviously, at NDIA, we, we, we have a keen interest in the defense industrial base. And many of our members are very, very concerned about what what uh, the defense industrial base should think about regarding acquisition reform is is acqu- acquisition reform, a zero sum game? Is it a positive sum game? What would get better for the defense industrial base? If we do acquisition reform? Any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I, I'm I'm a strong believer that um, you know that what we need to, what what, what in, in my experience, both in industry and in you know running the industrial base office, is that um, you know you sort of get the industry that you uh, that you um, that you want by what you you know your industrial policy is your budget essentially, right? So that if you only have a series of really big programs every once in a while, you create this zero sum kind of Uh, situation for the competitions that lead a lot of protests and uh, winner-take-all kind of situations. So what I'd like to see is think about, you know, how do we build industrial resilience by creating more opportunities for companies up and down the the industrial base? Because that's how
2: we build the kind of resilience overall.
0: Very good. Eric, any last thoughts?
2: Yeah. I mean, I would definitely agree with uh, Jerry there. I don't, I think we've created this kind of zero sum mentality with these big winner take all programs of record that take forever, and then you're just going to recap it. Right. Um, and so you, you kind of get into this employment and sales instability problem. Whereas if you can kind of chunk those down into smaller bite sized programs, uh, then you might be able to, to have that kind of continuous competition, but also you know you're gonna get you're gonna be able to streamline some of the staff, so you're really you know building out technology at scale rather than having this huge compliance burden. And then that also that creates competition, but it's not just a zero sum. I mean, the defense budget, in a respect, is zero sum, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have uh, the technologies that come from it in and out of the defense industrial base uh, don't have commercial applications. And what we've seen is a lot of uh, the big traditionals, they kind of firewall themselves, right? It's like, I have this business unit for government, and then maybe like Boeing will have a commercial one, but a lot of them have kind of, um, you know, been kind of insulated in that respect. But I think if the Department of Defense, because they respond to the Department of Defense, so they um, take on the, the compliance mechanisms and the look and the feel of their customer. It's not necessarily the industrial base's fault. So if the the customer can actually do a much better job in terms of agility and ability to uh, be flexible in that way and look a little bit more like a commercial customer, we know that the Department of Defense will never look exactly like that because it has unique mil- military needs. But then you might have some of these technologies being built out from the industrial base actually applying more to uh, the commercial sector, and they might be able to grow in that respect too, right? Because we know like Raytheon, for example, helped develop some of the technologies that led to the microwave, but they weren't necessarily able to capitalize on the microwave. Now, why was that, right? I don't think it's necessarily their fault in this respect. I think it's you know the culture that comes from government. And so government really does have to take the lead here um, to to create this kind of dynamic, competitive industrial base that makes it more of a win-win, you know, we grow the pie um, as opposed to a zero sum, you know, fight over the pie kind of mentality. Eric,
0: I'm going to make that the the last word. This has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Uh, Dr. Jeremy, again, Eric Lofgren, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Uh, Fascinating work. The Center for Government Contracting and the School of Business at George Mason University. I encourage our listeners and our viewers to check out the work that you've been producing uh really impactful meaningful white papers uh, on on issues that that are so important to 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 the defense industrial base. Thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate the conversation
1: you're welcome great to be with you mark yeah.